Hello, and welcome to Cool Story Guys. I'm Jeff. I'm Ethan. And it's spring. It spring is spring. Has sprung. Yes, thank God. Oh, it's so nice outside. It really right is now. nice outside, but I, I can't I can't lie and say that I've uh, actually been enjoying outside as much as maybe I could be. I've been been doing some gaming, Jeff. I heard you've been doing some gaming as well. I never stopped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you playing right now? Uh, I've been playing Genshin Impact for okay. like the last six months, which I sort of say with a a hint of shame. Yeah. Because I feel like real real gamers don't play Genshin Impact. Yeah, I mean, you know, what is a real gamer anymore nowadays? I mean, do you know what I've been doing? What have you been doing, Ethan? I mean, you know, as much as I want to kind of immerse myself in a fantasy world, I have missed the real world so, so much. And so I've been playing City Skylines, and I've been creating tiny little villages and tiny little towns that allow me to walk around and be free and go to restaurants and go to concerts. And I've kind of lost my mind a little bit. I mean, that actually sounds like it's a nice escape. <laughs> it is a nice escape. Absolutely. And I just keep looking out the window, hoping that somebody's just going to wave and say, come on, Ethan, come have fun. But it hasn't happened. So maybe I need to turn back to fantasy. But Genshin Impact, I played for about a month um, off and on, and I thought I was going to get sucked into it and completely addicted. So it kind of worried me. Yeah, there's like 400 different kinds of currencies. There's a there's a very <laughs> steep learning curve. There's And there's an infinite number of things to improve, yeah. which I think is what... I require right now in my life is just like this sort of endless task of things that I can make a little better every day. And it's also kind of nice because it has a timer on it. So like you can only do so much a day. Yeah. uh, Because left to my own devices, I will just play the video game for 10 hours. Yeah. And it's kind of got a nice built in thing that keeps you from doing that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the problem with those kind of games, regardless for me, is the fact that I have a lot in real life that I can improve on right now. And I definitely will redirect all my attention to those, uh, you know, getting my dexterity up and whatnot. But that game is making buku bucks. It's like millions of dollars. It made made a billion dollars in its first six months just on like iOS and Google Play, not even with PlayStation or PC sales. It did it. It made a billion dollars faster than Pokemon's. Which what? is is bonkers. Why are we wasting time on a podcast? Why don't we just make a we need to make a gotcha game? game. Yeah, 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 we need to not? make a gotcha game where yeah. we just have sort of like uh, we walk around with a backpack. Yep, and we say, "Give us ten bucks." Yep, and there's a chance that you'll get something cool out of my you'll backpack. Some, yes, exactly. We'll there's make, a chance it'll be bad. It'll yeah. be like a can of tuna or like a flaming sword. You have that option. Yeah. yeah. And the chances of you getting this flaming sword are 0.6%. Please read the fine print and also give me your $10. (laughs) Well, considering that we need quite a lot of uh, programming experience to even begin that, I think maybe we should stick to the podcast for now. Well, I mean, we're the idea men. Yeah. We're not we're not the ones who actually see things into fruition. We're the ones that just daydream. Yeah. Yeah. Here's in, an outrageous indoors, idea. Uh, we, we daydream indoors on the nice spring days <laughs> instead of going outside and living in the real world. Yeah. So speaking of nice spring days, <laughs> let's talk about yet another devastating chapter in the mm. Cool Story Guys <laughs> saga. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go through the recap. This one was a real was real cheery and bright like a <laughs> field of spring wildflowers. So this chapter takes place in much the same time frame as chapter two, except for it's from the point of view of Lorena. We open up on the fishing trawler during the storm, and Morwell has just been knocked unconscious by the boom crashing into his forehead. Lorena is screaming and tugging at him, trying to get him to wake up, but Danvers tells her there's nothing she can do and to get below deck. 
She hides in the same barrel she stowed away inside to sneak onto the boat and waits inside of it until all of her senses are scrambled and the boat finally comes to a screeching halt. When she goes back above deck, Lorena finds herself in a dark, barren landscape, surrounded by what appears to be boiling black sand. Morwell is still unconscious on the deck, and her grandfather is nowhere to be found. After some just really excellent flashback character voice work, Lorena decides to take action into her own hands like Uncle Maury would, and start figuring out how to survive on the boat. As she scavenges for supplies, the temperature rises higher and higher. By nighttime, it's so hot she can't sleep and decides to rummage through the cabin for her grandfather's fan. Instead, she ends up finding a flare gun and three cartridges, and shoots one off into the night to try and guide her grandfather home. In the morning, Lorena starts cooking the fresh fish in the hull by skewering them with a long piece of wooden molding and submerging them into the boiling sand. She sets off another flare, and sometime later sees someone approaching the boat in the distance. It's not her grandfather, but a boy, just a little older than her, walking across the sand on snowshoes. Lorena lets him up onto the boat and learns that his name is Calix, and that he's followed her flares to meet up with others after his father had gotten off their marooned boat and sunk down into the sand. Calix and his father were avid adventurers, living year-round on their boat and traveling the world as hunters and traders. She's wowed by the boy's stories of receiving enchanted snowshoes from an Arapa shaman in the northern plateaus, and they spend the following days together talking about their lives and playing around on the demolished boat until either Morwell wakes up or Danvers returns. The two of them are quickly smitten with each other and form a fast bond. There is some hand-holding, and it is very cute. (laughs) On Calix's second night there, Lorena has a dream in which she floats off the front of the boat towards the rock outcropping in the distance. Her body moves past the strange symbols in the cavern, seeming to illuminate them as she goes, until she comes to a large domed area in the back. Inside, there's a black sphere resting on what appears to be a metal pedestal covered in jagged welds. As Lorena touches the orb, she wakes up. That morning, she convinces Calix that the two of them need to go investigate the cave, and he wholeheartedly agrees. He carries her across the sand on his shoulders, and she is amazed to see that his snowshoes don't leave any tracks in the sand as he walks, and he's happy to remind her that they are no ordinary snowshoes. When they get to the outcropping, Calix is interested in looking at the symbols carved all over the rock, but Lorena moves directly inside. As she walks, Calix is struck by an unnerving realization that even though the only light in the cavern is coming from behind them, Lorena's shadow grows longer the further she moves into the cave, obscuring the symbols on the floor. When they reach the dome chamber, the light on Calix's wrist flickers on and off depending on which side of the domed archway he stands, and he realizes that it's some kind of barrier. Lorena heads straight for the orb, which is positioned exactly the same way it had been in her dream. Before Calix can object, Lorena wraps her hands around the orb and her body goes transparent. The cavern immediately explodes in oppressive heat, so hot that Calix can barely breathe and the stone floor singes his skin when he slides along it in desperation to escape. The metal pedestal begins to rock back and forth and then tumble end over end down the cavern, the metal welds seemingly heating up from the inside and breaking apart with each leaden crash into the ground. Calix tries to grab Lorena, but his hand passes right through her, so in desperation he tries to yank the black sphere from her hand, but it burns him badly. One end of the metal box breaks off, releasing fiery tentacles that squirm along the sides. As it crashes down the hallway, more of the monster escapes the metal container until it appears to be nothing but a helmet on a massive flame beast, squirming along on tentacles with long, dragging, simian-like arms. As the fiery form exits the barrier on the other end of the cavern, it exults in a mighty stretch after untold years trapped inside its metal tomb, releasing a shockwave of white-hot energy back through the cavern. 
When it passes over the orb, it flickers and drops from Lorena's hands, and she phases back into form. She wakes up to see the runes in the dome chamber absorbing the heat and flame, and begins to worriedly search for Calyx. She only finds his snowshoes, black with soot but undamaged, sticking out from a small pile of charred bone and ash. After hours crying in the cavern, Lorena finally leaves, begrudgingly taking the snowshoes with her, and finds a strange creature at the front of the cavern, covered in radiating blue light, like a squid with a ratty metal box stuck on its head. She tries to head back to the boat, but finds that the boiling sand has been transformed to black glass. As she puts the snowshoes on, she discovers a second, much larger pile of ash and bone, and in it, Morwell's dog tags. Lorena screams into the night and stares into the black sphere, trying to understand what had happened to her while two of the only people she cared about in her life were incinerated. In her vision, Lorena has been transported to a world of fire, surrounded by flames, though it doesn't harm her. At first, she's afraid, but the longer she stays, the more she's emboldened by the fire's power. At the end of the vision, she sees another person inside the fire, a woman with crimson skin and bone-white hair, screaming maniacally in either agony or ecstasy. So, don't you laugh at my story. I, the best part of that, by the story, is that it started out, and honestly, Jeff writes an absolutely beautiful teen romance. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I think maybe this could be a side project for you, Jeff. First, let's talk about the roles <laughs> and talk about that. It's Why the, the roles that are the reason that I wrote The yes. Fault in Our Stars. Yes. So the first one that we had was what the character finds their first love. Correct? Yeah. So I rolled a three. I rolled protagonist finds first love, which when we put into the original fate index, we were like, this is going to be an interesting one yeah. when it shows up, because this is one that could totally derail the story if you're like in the middle of the action, and then all of a sudden you have to pivot to a first love. <laughs> like, Which we both thought was would be really funny. Yeah, if that we was were case. just sure that it was going to be the climax, and it was like, let's take a little detour yeah, and talk yeah. about <laughs> first love. <laughs> and then the second role was what Ethan rolled. <laughs> Which was um, someone important to the protagonist dies. Yes. Which, why not? <laughs> why why not pair those two together? So yeah, the what I intended to do with this chapter was completely upended by these roles. Yeah. And the only person after Ethan's chapter that it made sense to have a story of first love was Lorena. Yeah. And I was glad that he had introduced a tween girl into <laughs> the narrative, but I I don't know. Maybe if it's just that, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not going to have kids. I don't write about kids. Yeah. <laughs> but Ethan forced my hand. And not only did I have to write about a tween girl, I had to make her fall in love. And then to make it, yeah, just brutal. Then the other role was, okay, yeah, but you got to kill someone close to that person too. And as we discussed in the last podcast episode, you can't cheat the fate index. No. You can't have Morwell already dying being someone close to Lorena dying. So it only made sense that I had to kill Calyx too. Yeah. And and I, I think it, it's just the funny thing about this chapter is you see a point where Jeff almost is like, oh my God, this works. And then he just goes all in on just evaporating not only Calyx, but also having Lorena find the remains of Morwell. And this is the grimmest chapter of the book so far in chapter three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the trajectory of this book so far is brutal. Yeah. Yeah, the last two chapters, we have 
completely not been able to do what we wanted to do and had to do what the roles told us to do, which is what we, we assumed that this was going to be the way that this worked starting the project. But I also didn't expect to get two death rolls back to back you want some breathing room i think yeah this isn't I, game of thrones like right yeah 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 but calyx was an invented character i mean you built calyx specifically to fall in love and die and that is like horrific <laughs> yeah well i didn't really have a choice now did i i mean the other the other option was that i kill off danvers yes but i liked the mystery of where is danvers we already decided danvers is going to be the antagonist <laughs> I mean, where is Danvers? Where do you think Danvers is right now? Plotting. He's just somewhere. Scheming. <laughs> I have some ideas. I have an idea for what's going to happen to Danvers. And I wanted, just like in the same way that you had to, because of my role, to kill your protagonist in Chapter 2, yeah. you had to invent more well just to die. Yeah. I had to do that for Calyx, which is, I mean, it's a, it was harder, I think. I remember you saying that you you were sad having to kill this character that you just invented. It's surprising, uh, isn't but it? But you made you, know. you made a soldier to die. Y- I yeah. made a sweet baby boy. A young I killed my baby boy. A young boy who'd already been through quite a bit of tragedy with the loss of his mother and this eternal and father. Like- oh yeah, and his father had died. Yeah, just he's recently. A, he was a, he was orphan. He's an orphan. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. I yes, killed an orphan. Or- <laughs> God, Jeff. Oh boy. Um. So much. I mean. <laughs> I'm not laughing because of the whole situation. It's just uh, our trajectory really is off. But I mean, when you went into this chapter of those two roles, when you got both of those, which one was the one that kind of made you a little bit more intimidated? You know, what was the one that you weren't feeling good about writing, which you would have if you could, let's say this, if you could replace either one of those two roles, which one would it have been? The teen romance, for yeah. sure. As I said earlier, it's just not my choice generally to write from the point of view of kids. Yeah. And I, I don't know exactly why that is, but I prefer to maybe relate more to the characters that I'm writing. I just, ha- I have, I have never written from the perspective of a child yeah. in any of my personal work. Yeah. And so the fact that the role seemed to dictate like the only thing that made sense with that role was writing about Lorena because I couldn't, I mean, definitely I thought about, okay, how am I going to work into some sort of flashback about the crimson woman's first love? It just, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. So if I had to change one, I I would have gone back to the crimson woman. Like I had every intention of my chapter going back and exploring her. And then it was like, no, I guess, I guess we're staying we're staying on this side of the world. But I did like the opportunity then to sort of double back mm-hmm. and tell the same the same time frame as your chapter from a different perspective. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I like when that happens in stories. And I liked the opportunity to sort of fill in more details about what happened on their boat and what happened to Morwell while he was passed out. And you gave me enough breadcrumbs in your chapter that I that there was a lot of things that I could use to sort of build uh, Lorena's story, mm-hmm. which uh, which was fun. I, I ended up having a good time writing it. I wouldn't say that I like anguished over the fact that I had to create a teen romance and then kill the poor boy right away but i did shake my head a lot at like what is what is up with the with the fate of these roles <laughs> that this is this is the logical thing that that it's telling me to do with the story i mean we're two guys that have been stuck inside for a year clearly this is coming out in every role that we do <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so 
One of the things that we kind of see in this story, again, is another kind of prophetic look, maybe not as prophetic at this time, but kind of a look into another time with a character, and it's surrounding these orbs. Okay, so there's something building around here. Are we suggesting at this point, obviously the next role could completely throw this out, but are we suggesting that Lorena is sensitive to magic? She's a chosen one type person? I mean, what was your mind frame behind that? I wanted to leave it open where either she could have some sort of connection to this orb, Mm -hmm. or this orb could be something more insidious that just reached out to her and sort of ensnared her. Yeah. So it's unclear at this point. It's it's very hard to make concrete decisions about what you want your story to do when you have to write The Fault in Our Stars in Chapter 3, <laughs> um, which I, I love that that was like a joke that we made in the beginning where we were like, well, yeah, maybe we end up writing a teen romance. And then it was like, I had I only got to write one chapter before I had to do a teen romance. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've. You did a good job with it. I, I keep coming back to it. You did a really good job with it. Um, but but in that in that scene, Calix didn't see this. He didn't see what? He didn't see the prophetic vision. No. At least we don't know whether or not he did because he was insane. No, it was her. It was her dream. Okay. Okay. So okay. Uh, I mean, she tells him that they need to go. She thinks they need to go in the cavern because it's important, but I don't think she was like, I was floating through the cavern. (laughs) Let me me describe this to you in great detail. But when you're writing these chapters, because this is kind of what I'm doing too, do you have a kind of a universe 2.0, which is like, if Ethan did not write with me, and if I didn't have to roll the die, this is what things would look like. Do you have things built out a couple chapters in advance, or are you keeping your mind relatively clear? I mean, I'm trying to think forward to end game that will happen regardless of what you write or mm-hmm. I write. Okay. Uh, which is which is difficult. You know, as each chapter sort of progresses, I think that it's becoming ever so slightly more clear as yep. to what I want to do with it. But no, I'm not keeping like a book of contingents <laughs> in my head of things that could happen in the story. <laughs> that would be sure. something cool to have, though, on the side, though. And we've got the fate index. If I were a better one. writer, I might have the, one. The, the Tome but, of Contingents. Yes, the Tome of Contingents. <laughs> <laughs> so you you don't spend a lot of time on this, but you start to talk about the Arapa, okay? And you start mm-hmm. to talk about this northern world, or this northern location, and it's cold, and it's a little bit of world building. Do you anticipate that you, we want to start exploring this world a little bit more? I mean, right now we have two locations more or less we don't know how far away they are from each other but would you like to expand the grasp of this or do you want to kind of keep it you know localized i think the the intention of of introducing that place was more to just introduce another group of people that are sort of clued into magical things mm-hmm. and kind of like the, in the way i did with the with the aquine in the first chapter where they have some sort of closer relationship with a deity or with the mystic part of the world mm-hmm. the arapa have shamans and there is something happening in other parts of the world that sort of mimic what is happening with magic in other parts of the world that may not seem connected but you know i was alluding to that with the fact that the snowshoes don't leave any footprints in the sand and neither does the crimson woman sort of thing mm-hmm. they are sort of untouchable so i'm slowly trying to create little threads that are intertwining around each other okay. in the hope that eventually there will be lots of threads that create something that makes more sense. Okay. Okay. I don't have a, a like Antarctic expedition planned <laughs> for Lorena to go find the Arapa. 
I, I kind of do now. Okay, well, that's fine. Hopefully she finds a hot air balloon because it seems like it's quite <laughs> quite far away. <laughs> um, so <laughs> changing you know, the, the subject a little bit, but as a, as a pretty good chef, um, I really liked the time that you spent on the fantasy salt bake in this story when Lorena oh, was cooking you. fish. So I, I, I wondered, you know, what was your what was your mentality behind that? It seemed like we, we focused a little bit on that. Well, I tend to spend a lot of time talking about food in everything I write. Yeah, and I'm taking I'm I, I'm taking a creative writing class right now with the Berlin Writers Workshop to sort of you know sharpen my craft. Uh, and it's been really great. And I, I just gave them a chapter of something else I was working on. And they were like, I, I had already talked to my instructor about food. And he was like, oh, you wrote about food. And it was like, I write about food in every single thing <laughs> that I write about. And it's because I like food a lot. And yeah, my main hobby is cooking. Yeah. And then I just I just seem to not be able to help myself. Yeah. I mean, it actually, knowing that you wrote it, it actually sounded good. I've eaten Jeff's food. It's really excellent. Even the idea of dipping fish into black boiling sand came out pretty good. But um, I, I liked that part because what it kind of painted in Lorena without saying it directly is that ah, she's quite capable. She can figure stuff that out. Was, that was my main intention in that scene and just her on the boat in general yeah. was like, if I'm going to be forced to write about a tween they're going to be cool and they're going to be smart and they're going to figure out they're going, they're not going to be useless. Mm -hmm. I gave her five seconds to cry until she was like, that isn't going to help anything. Yeah. And then she figured out how to do a salt bake with boiling sand. <laughs> so I found that to be much more interesting. I don't, I don't like it in stories when protagonists are helpless and they spend a lot of time complaining or being sad when they could move forward. I find moving forward to be, much more interesting to read. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of the chapter, Lorena gets a vision of the Crimson Woman, and the Crimson Woman is awash in flame. We're talking again about the connection to the orbs, and I wondered if at that moment, that time was actually in line with the time that the Crimson Woman touched her orb, and that the two timelines we're talking about are actually chapter one and three are aligned, and then chapter two and whatever would be aligned. Did you have a thought behind that, or was that just kind of a happenstance? Well, I don't want to go too much into how I want that to work together because that's that's the book ethan but uh no i what i wanted there was really that seemed like the best way to at least introduce the crimson woman to lorena mm -hmm. and to have this sort of falseness in the way that she perceives the crimson woman mm -hmm. where she sees her in this fire after her friends have been incinerated and she could very easily think that the Crimson Woman is the one who did it. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's that's what I was hoping to get there, to, to have some sort of uh, possible conflict between the two that was rooted in something that was not either of their fault. Gotcha. But it also gives the opportunity to link, because I very clearly want to link what is happening to the characters and these orbs that they are touching, the black one and the carnelian one. So I imagine that this is going to be one of the major plot points moving forward in the story, and they need to be connected. And so mm -hmm. I connected them very early, at least in a tangential way. Gotcha. Okay. From henceforth, anytime somebody is incinerated by flame, do we call it being Morweld or being Calixed? Too soon, man. <laughs> you gonna take my sweet baby boy away from me and, and nickname incineration after him? 
So let's talk about the new roles that we are adding to the Fade Index. We are now done with writing them ourselves. We are sourcing them from listeners. The two that we added for your chapter Mm -hmm. were character loses a limb and has it replaced with an unexpected alternative. I love that one. This comes to us thanks to uh, NLJ Berlin on Twitter. He tweeted at us. He's the first person to ever tweet at us. We should send him something. We're going to send him a fruit basket for sure. <laughs> we're, we're trying on Twitter, man, but nobody is nobody is deciding to play in our space with us. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. We'll get there eventually, but boy, that's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other one came to us on Instagram from Noah Pepe X Burns, and that is protagonist develops or has some incurable urge that they must sate daily. This one was really good. I yeah. really liked that one. We yeah. should give, well, that's not very nice to give rewards for the ones that are really, really good, but that's a great one. Yeah, because we have, we are, we are receiving more than we are using. We're sort of cherry picking the ones that we like best yeah. or the ones that we think will do the most interesting thing to the story. Yeah. Maybe if we ever, if we ever come up with some sort of reward system, we'll retroactively give it to <laughs> Nathan and Noah for their very good suggestions. So many fruit baskets are going to be going through the yeah. interwebs. <laughs> One of the ways that I have been trying to field new suggestions is through my D&D group, because it's a bunch of people who like fantasy and are creative. And uh, this is very topical right now. The Suez Canal debacle is currently (laughs) just resolving itself. And we did not use this as an upcoming Fate Index idea. But T-Lake on my D&D Slack channel says... A giant vessel has blocked the only canal through which important material spell components are shipped. As supply for these particular components bottoms out and demand skyrockets, most mages begin experimenting with alternatives, leading to unintended and often hilarious spell effects. So good. I wish we had water. It is It is so good. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about the fact that it wouldn't work because boats don't work in our world anymore. It's 100% amazingly topical and still a great thing where like by the time it finally got into a story or if somebody read the story and it wasn't this week when that was the piece of news yeah they would forget that the suez canal even exists or had a a problem yeah but yes that was an excellent submission from t lake we also sort of realized in getting this suggestion that there was maybe something that we should have added to the original fate index as a role which was how funny we're allowed to be in our story. Yeah. I think we're getting torn because we're getting really good, funny ideas. And again, based on this last chapter, not exactly the funniest story out there right now. So we're, we're kind of torn about what direction we go in with those. So I think we need to have more, you know, behind closed doors discussions on that, but we really, really should have. I mean, we should, at this point, we should basically be begging for people to write funny ones because our story sucks. (laughs) It's so sad. (laughs) It At least me- lighthearted, like maybe a, an animated bunny or something to like sing songs, anything. We'll take anything right now. We mm-hmm. need to get the grimness out of this. This isn't Warhammer. Okay. This isn't Warhammer. Well, your wife proposed one that was something about adding a magical cat and we sort of poo-pooed it. And then the story made me kill my sweet baby boy. And now I'm like, yeah, I want to put the magical cat in. <laughs> I don't like my story anymore. In all fairness, any idea she gives us is going to revolve around a cat. I can guarantee it. <laughs> Okay, Jeff, but we can't get away without going to our favorite segment of these podcasts. I thought I had escaped. Did you escape? 
I, th- I thought we, I thought I was getting out of here without no being put in <laughs> no you, being put you in didn't. the corner. You are back into the corner of self doubt. It's the corner of self doubt. So, in the reading or the writing of this chapter, what was the biggest issue you had with yourself? I learned in recording this second chapter that I really have no control over how my voice sounds. And <laughs> the I'm, worst X-Men power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember, you know, my my brother, he was the first person that I let listen to the first chapter. And he was like, ooh, your your voice is so bassy and smooth. And I thought that too. It was the first time I had recorded myself reading something. And I was like, wow, my voice is like deep and well-rounded it was really good and yeah and then try as i might to replicate that in this chapter it was like that that aspect of my voice was completely gone and i just sounded like a you know gravelly man again (laughs) so i yeah i mean i've i've never exactly considered my voice to be a precise instrument but i i'm a i'm a bit of a perfectionist so the fact that i feel like i sound pretty different between chapter one and three I'm just expecting by the time to, that I have to record chapter five, uh, I'm going to be like this, Hover. whisper man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, sh- you should just be whisper man from now yeah. on. That's a great, that's a great uh, way to read and also a great character we could introduce mm-hmm. uh, later on. But I, I honestly, I didn't notice like a difference between those two, which is, I think it's so funny. I mean, it's probably just in the same way that my corner of self-doubt from chapter one was something that probably only bothered me. (laughs) This is probably also something that only bothers me. No, it was no, it was really well read. I mean, I, it's tough to read. Are you doing any exercises to try to regain this, you know, deep bassy voice that you thought you had in the first chapter? Mm. Yelling at kids, drinking whiskey. Well, you see, it seems like all of those activities would make it less bassy. It would make it more gravelly. So, no, I there's there's nothing that I'm doing to to try to regain that. I suppose maybe I'm not doing things that would exacerbate the problem. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm in like I'm in health zone over here. Yeah. I don't get to go out into the world anymore, so nobody is handing me cigarettes. So, which is something that happened to you all the time. Well, I he mean, could barely get out the front door and somebody had handed him a pack of cigarettes. Well, I mean, that's the thing about Berlin is you can still smoke in the bars. Yeah. And a lot of my friends smoked and I have no self-control. Oh, so bars. it's, it's for the best. Thank yeah. you, pandemic. Yeah. Thank you, pandemic <laughs> for making sure that I never recreationally smoke cigarettes anymore. <laughs> so Ethan's chapter four is coming up next. Yep. It is, uh, well, we're not, we're not going to give you any more clues as to whether or not it gets uh, brighter or darker, but you could probably guess for yourself. It's a chapter. The, it's a tra- the trajectory is real. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to everybody who sent us submissions for the Fate Index on our various social media channels. Please follow us. Please interact with us on Twitter. I hate it so much, but we're, get, we're working on it. We're trying to we're trying to crack that egg. If you don't interact with us, I will interact with you. Yes, <laughs> Ethan all is weekend going, long. <laughs> Ethan is going to take a very aggressive approach to interacting <laughs> with strangers on Twitter. Also, if you are enjoying the podcast. 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you use to listen to it. And please leave us a review. It really helps. Even if you just click the the star rating or especially if you write some nice words, it helps the algorithm show it to new people and show them that it is something worth listening to. Feed the algorithm, please. Yes, please, please feed the algorithm. <laughs> okay, thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks a lot.